Amen. Last week, uh, Matt uh, helped me preach for us from uh, verses 1 through 16, and there we saw Jesus choose his 12 apostles. And instead of choosing the religious leaders of their day, the Pharisees, Jesus chose a morally depraved tax collector. Instead of choosing the theologians and scholars of his day, the scribes, Jesus chose the fishermen, the uneducated fishermen. Uh, Instead of choosing the politicians and people in power, Jesus chose a zealot, a fringe political revolutionary. Instead of choosing people with exemplary faith, Jesus chose a man who will become famous for his doubting. And instead of choosing those who would be loyal to him to the point of death, Jesus chose a man who would deny him three times publicly and a man who would eventually betray him to arrest an eventual death. So Jesus called these men apostles, the twelve, that will form the foundation of the church. And these head-scratching choices that Jesus made bring us to the passage for today. Because it leaves us wondering, what kind of people then are the citizens of God's kingdom? And how does this kingdom really operate? And Luke 6, 17-38 gives us an answer to those two questions. So let's read together, verses 17-38. to And he came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowds sat to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your life. But with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I read to 38 because it's related, but I'll actually speak on 37 38 on the following week. Uh, so we'll stop at 36 
uh, for today. And the main point uh, of this passage is that as the citizens of the kingdom of God, we should love people selflessly and sacrificially. And that brings us to two main points. One, it's the citizens of what is, who are the citizens of the kingdom, verses 17 to 26, and then what the code of the kingdom is in 27 to 36. Uh, verses 17 to 19 tell us this. Uh, read with me. Uh, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great cloud of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowds sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. Uh, so after choosing his 12 apostles on the mountain, he came down it says, and stood on a level place. Uh, that's why this teaching that follows in the rest of the chapter is often called the Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Level Place. Uh, in contrast to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, through 7. Uh, there are a lot of parallels between the two sermons, uh, and it's possible that they're the same sermon. Uh, so, but, but Matthew 5-1 says that Jesus sat down on the mountain to teach, while Luke tells us that he came down and stood on a level place. Uh, this is not an irreconcilable difference because a level place doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus came all the way down from the mountain. It could simply mean that he was looking for a, a flat enough space to stand on and to teach for people to gather. Uh, so it could be the same sermon. Uh, it's also possible that there are two different sermons. Uh, repeating uh, repetition is a time-tested and proven method of effective teaching. Uh, especially itinerant preachers like Jesus would have often repeated the same messages for us to learn. So it's not hard to imagine Jesus uh, taught these messages in two different contexts. Uh, so that's impossible to establish with certainty, but what's important for our purposes is that uh, whether it's one or two sermons, Matthew and Luke have reproduced Jesus' sermon in ways that have distinct emphases. So they have their own context. So in order to appreciate what Luke has written for us, we need to appreciate the Sermon on the Plain on its own terms instead of going back and looking at everything from the lens of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, uh, and so in, in that way, we can appreciate the unique uh, emphasis that Luke is trying to bring home to us. Uh, and in that introduction passage I just read, we saw that there are three distinct audiences, three different kinds of audiences. First, there are the 12 apostles that came down with Jesus. And then there's a great crowd of his disciples, it says, so there's a larger crowd of disciples that goes beyond the 12 apostles. Uh, and then finally, it says that there's a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So that third category is distinguished from his disciples, the larger crowd of disciples, which suggests that there are likely people who are not followers of Jesus, skeptics, unbelievers in the crowd as well, and likely some hostile Pharisees and scribes that we saw earlier in the chapter. And Jesus' popularity is ex explained in verse 18. It says that these people came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So these accounts of miracles are not just legends or quaint stories that were tagged on, tacked onto Jesus' teaching. It's, it's easy for us as people living in the modern era to dismiss people from the ancient world as gullible and superstitious, but Actually, people in the ancient world didn't believe that miracles happened regularly either, which is why this is extraordinary. And that's why people are gathering, because Jesus is doing amazing things. Verse 19 says, And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came up from him and healed them all. It's hard to garner this kind of attention even with sleek branding and aggressive marketing. But Jesus didn't have any of that. In fact, he often intentionally withdrew from large crowds so that he would not be detained or distracted from his preaching. So Jesus was drawing the crowds here for these two primary reasons, because he preached with authority and he backed up his preaching with demonstrations of God's power by healing diseases and exercising demons. So preaching and power, that's what the people came to see, to hear him and to be healed. And it says Jesus healed them all, all who came to him. But when the time came for him to teach, it says in verse 20, it says Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So this is important because he heals them all. He heals all the people who come with need 
But when he's teaching here, he's specifically addressing his disciples, those who follow him. Yes, the multitude can listen in to learn from this, but Jesus is specifically addressing his disciples, telling them this is what it means to be a follower. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. This is what this is the profile of a disciple. That's what the next few verses are about. This is what the citizens of the kingdom of God are like. In verses 17 to 26, now Jesus first describes positively what the disciples are like. And then with four matching statements, opposite statements, he describes uh, what the disciples are not like negatively. Uh, The blessed are you statements, the four of them here, are often referred to as the Beatitudes, uh, which comes from the Latin word for blessed. Uh, It was common in the ancient world to refer to people as blessed. It refers to a state of happiness, a contentedness, a blessedness. Uh, It's really not that dissimilar from uh, that overused hashtag, blessed. You guys have seen that, right? (laughs) Uh, If you search for the hashtag blessed on Instagram or Twitter, you will literally find millions of posts that are tagged that way. And for example, there will be a picture of someone sipping margarita on the beach. Blessed. (laughs) Someone hugging or kissing their valentine, you know, and they'll say blessed. A lot of times, people who use the term blessed don't even believe in God. So they don't even believe in being blessed, but they're just saying that they're happy. They're fortunate. Uh, And uh, the word blessed was used in similar ways in the ancient world. Now, think about what you would typically associate with the idea of being blessed. What you'd use that hashtag for. And then be Jesus' shocking teaching. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. For you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. It's the exact opposite of what people then and now would call blessed. People post pictures of their handsome paycheck or a thick wad of cash or pictures of themselves eating delicious meals, foods from fine restaurants, or pictures of themselves laughing with their friends and family, and then they say blessed. Not when you're poor, hungry, weeping, hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned. What in the world is Jesus talking about? The parallel structure of this passage suggests that blessed are you statements, there's four of them, they're not referring to four different kinds of people, but they're all different ways of referring to the same kind of people, one group of people. So who exactly are these people that are blessed by God? First, verse 20 says, blessed, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, Bible commentator Robert Welch uh, helpfully explains the biblical concept of the poor this way. He says, the poor in Judaism are referred to, referred to those in desperate need, the socioeconomic element, whose helplessness drove them to a dependent relationship with God, the religious element, for the supplying of their needs and vindication. So that the idea of the poor combines the socioeconomic and spiritual elements. The two elements are related because the socioeconomically rich, the well-off, are often self-sufficient while the socioeconomically poor often realize their insufficiency and depend on God. This is confirmed by the way Luke uses socioeconomic categories to refer to spiritual realities. He uses them almost metaphorically. He says, for example, in Luke chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The language of debt, financial debt, he uses Metaphorically refer to our debt of sin. Verses 22 to 23 tell us that these poor that God's referring to, that Jesus is referring to, are people who are persecuted on account of Jesus Christ. So these are people who are cut off from the pleasures and privileges of this world because of their allegiance to Christ and their citizenship in the kingdom of God. 
So the poor are those who are dependent on God. Which is why Jesus says later in chapter 18, verse 17, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. A child is by definition dependent. Right, we file them in our taxes as dependents. Those who humble themselves before God spiritually are often materially poor. And that's why, uh, but that's what, well, I'll come on later, but, but there are exceptions to that, which is why in chapter 8, chapter 19 in Luke, uh, the rich tax collector, Zacchaeus, is saved because even though he was rich, he humbles himself. He becomes poor in spirit. So the poor is a generalization of the type of people that turn to God for salvation. So Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Notice that the statement is in the present tense. The poor possess the kingdom of God now. This is a call to faith, because being poor in this world feels miserable. You can't get what you want when you want it. Sometimes you can't even get what you need. It's humiliating. You are looked down upon and, and that's, it feels miserable. It does not feel good to be poor. In a similar way, the poor in spirit likewise feel miserable. They feel that they're miserable sinners. They feel helpless and unworthy. But Jesus says to the poor, the kingdom of God is yours. Your poverty might feel like a curse. You might feel no comfort in this life now. But yours is the kingdom the corresponding woe to you statement, look at it in verse 24, says this, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe is the opposite of blessed. It's an, ex- it's an exclamation of pity for someone's misfortune. Instead of the kingdom of God, the rich in this life have their riches and what they can buy with their riches as their consolation prize. The phrase, you have received, in Greek is a technical commercial, commercial term for accept, accepting the receipt of payment. In other words, the check has already been cut. Those who put their hope in riches, for those who live for riches, those who are self-sufficient in their riches, those who, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. The riches that they enjoy in this life is their full payment. That's why when I pray for you guys, when I pray for other believers, I never pray that God will make them rich. Jesus says later in Luke 8, 14, when the seed of the gospel is sown on our hearts, in some cases that these seeds are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Jesus says again in Luke 18, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Basically impossible, apart from God's work. First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Being rich generally speaking, from a biblical standpoint, is not spiritually desirable. It's in fact dangerous. Yes, it's helpful and useful in this life. Riches can buy you mansions. Riches can buy you beauty. It can buy you power. It can buy you sex. It can buy you comfort. It can buy you toys and gadgets. It can buy you cars. But guess what? If that's what you live for, that's all you're going to get. That's your prize. Or you will not have the kingdom of God. Many of us are wealthy by global standards. How then are we supposed to live? 1 Timothy 6, 16-17 teach us this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Only the rich who are poor in spirit, only the rich who do not depend on the uncertainty of riches, but instead depend on the God who richly provides, only the rich who are rich in good works, not just to themselves, but toward others and toward God, and are generous with their wealth. Only the rich who are concerned with storing up treasures in heaven rather than on earth, only those rich possess the kingdom of God. Jesus continues the Beatitudes in verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. One of the most difficult and humiliating things that poor people in our world experience is hunger. And they who have no money to buy food for themselves, they cry out to God to fill their hunger. They, they mourn the injustice of this world and the callousness of people who let their fellow men go hungry. So they look to God for his provision. That's what the hungry uh, being referred to here are. But once again, like the term poor, it refers to more than just the physically hungry. Psalm 107 speaks of our hunger of soul for the Lord. Uh, and, and a parallel verse in Matthew 5, 6 draws out this meaning when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you long for righteousness in this world? Do you see how woefully inadequate your own righteousness is before God? Do you hunger for more of it? Blessed are you who are hungry now. If you mourn your sins, if you long for that righteousness, if you pray and you cry out for that, you hunger for it, you thirst for it, then you will be satisfied. A just kingdom, a righteous kingdom will be your possession forever. And notice that the tense shifts here to the future. He said the, the poor... For yours is the kingdom of God. But here he says, hungry who are those who are hungry now will be satisfied later. You shall be satisfied. The kingdom of God is in the possession of the poor now, but the satisfaction of their hunger lies in the future. This points to the already but not yet reality of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has already been inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. You could think of it this way. Our towns, our homes, were under occupation of the enemy army. But Christ has won a decisive battle in the front lines that guarantees our victory in the war. The effects of that decisive battle, however, are still being worked out in all the towns. So for now, there is still hunger. There's still poverty, there's still weeping, there's still persecution. But because victory is won, its effects will soon spread and be experienced in fullness everywhere. That's why we're hungry now. That's why we still wrestle with our sins now. That's why we still have to mourn the lack of righteousness in this world now. But that day is coming when that will be fulfilled. And that hunger for righteousness will be satisfied. Similarly, Jesus says in the second half of verse 21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The poor and the hungry in his life weep because of the sins and sufferings of this world. Are you too busy amusing yourself with diversions from life that you fail to mourn the great injustices of life? Are you too busy laughing and pursuing the pleasures of this world that you never weep about your own sinfulness. You have an awareness of your own depravity, your own selfishness and pride that makes you weep. Weep so then take heart. Blessed are you. Those who weep now will get their final laughing. The converse is also true. It says in the second half of verse 25, 
Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. For woe to, you, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. People who are satisfied with their righteousness now, those who are self-righteous, those who are self-satisfied, those who are not looking for justice and righteousness on the earth, those who laugh derisively at the followers of Jesus, those who pay no attention to the sins and sufferings of this world, their laughter now will be replaced by weeping. And Jesus continues that radical teaching in verses 22 to 23. Be with me. Blessed are those, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son. These verses reveal clearly that Jesus has more than physical poverty, hunger, and weeping in view. He's referring to those who experience these things on account of their commitment to Jesus. And the four verbs get increasingly worse, increasingly more hostile and intense. First, they hate you. Instead of just hating you in their hearts, they actually exclude you from their social circles. And instead of merely excluding you, they revile you, slandering you in front of others. And then finally, they spurn your name as evil. To spurn someone's name is to reject the whole person as an evil person. And and note that uh, this harsh treatment is not in and of itself a sign of blessedness. Uh, sometimes Christians uh, are hated and excluded, reviled and spurred, not because they're being committed to Christ and representing Him well, but because just they're just being jerks. That's why we have to read the whole statement. It doesn't say, blessed are you when people hate you. That's not a virtue by itself. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. If you are persecuted because of your commitment to Christ, and then, then that, should, that should not cause you to doubt or make you more depressed, but instead it says in verse 23, it should make you rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This is uh, the only command in this entire section of the Beatitudes. On the day you are persecuted for Christ's sake, he says, rejoice. Leap for joy. That exact wording, leap for joy, was used earlier in Luke chapter 1 to refer to John the Baptist leaping for joy in his mother's womb when the mother of Jesus, pregnant with Jesus, approached him. Being near Jesus, coming to Jesus, causes joy, brings joy. And that's how we are to rejoice. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, throughout the book of Acts, which is the sequel to the book of the Gospel of Luke. People, the followers of Christ, are persecuted, they're beaten, they're stoned and left for dead, and they rejoice that they have the honor of being persecuted for Christ's sake. Why should this be the case? Verse 23 gives us two reasons why we should rejoice. First, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And second, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So though even though we suffer now, in heaven we will be vindicated and receive a reward for our faithfulness to Christ. That's the first reason. And the second reason is that the fact that we're being persecuted reveals our nearness to God because the prophets of God in the past were persecuted in the same way that we are. Persecution is evidence that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and not of this world. That's cause to rejoice. And the corresponding statement is in verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If all people speak well of you, that's actually a problem because in John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Those who faithfully follow Christ will be persecuted, and being spoken well of by all people indicates that you have compromised in some measure with the world. Even a dead fish can drift with the current. 
But if you want to be swimming upstream like salmon, you have to be alive and strong. Those who belong to this world drift with the sinful ways of this world. But those who belong to the kingdom of God go against the current, in spite of the persecution. So to which of these sides do you belong? There's a clear separation here between Jesus' disciples and the rest of the crowd. Jesus lifted up his eyes onto his disciples and taught them directly, saying, Blessed are you. But he spoke of their fathers who persecuted the true prophets and welcomed and loved the false prophets. You, they, poor, hungry, weeping, persecuted, do you belong to that category? Or are you rich, full, laughing, and universally loved? Some of you know this morning that you belong to this latter category. You know that you, you don't know what it's like to weep for sin or the sufferings of this world, to hunger for righteousness, to be poor and persecuted. And if that's you, you must acknowledge your sins and repent, turn from your sin, and humbly receive Jesus' love for you, the grace of God given to you, and Jesus dying for your sins to save you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 puts it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The righteous Son of God, Jesus, died on the cross for sinful people like you and me, and he was raised from the dead, so that the poor in this world that Jesus is describing here might inherit his riches. So that the sinners of this world might inherit his righteousness. So that the spiritually dead in this world might inherit eternal life. It's through Jesus that you become citizens of the kingdom of God. So that's the profile of the citizen of the kingdom. Now let's turn to the code of the kingdom. These are the people of the land. What is the law of the land that we are to live by? And that law is love. Radically selfless and sacrificial love. Uh, but before we dive into that commandment, let's, let's first note the relationship between the Beatitudes and the commandment to love uh, that we see here. Because Jesus is not saying to us, if you love this way, then you will be blessed. If you love this way, then you will enter the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus is saying. The command to love is given to those who already are blessed, those who already are in the kingdom of God. No one earns their way to heaven through their obedience. Rather, obedience characterizes those who are already heavenly citizens. So with that in mind, let's dive into verses 27 to 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. The Old Testament had commanded Jews to love their neighbor as themselves. But the Jews had restricted their definition of neighbor to people who were like them, people who shared their religious views, people who shared their ethnic heritage. And Jesus here challenges that notion and radically expands the category of neighbor here to include even our enemies, those who hate and oppose us. And let's be uh, over-spiritualize this command to love our enemies and we say to ourselves, well, okay, well, I really don't want anything to do with that enemy of mine. But fine, I will love him in my heart. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus adds specific ways in which we ought to love our enemies. And he says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus is not merely speaking of a vaguely loving attitude that you should just have for these people. Jesus is commanding us to do something concrete and active. Do good to your enemies. Seek their welfare. When they curse you, seek, when they seek your harm, bless them and seek their welfare. When they slander and mistreat you, instead of retaliating in kind, pray for them. That's actually great advice. When you are having trouble loving someone or when you're having trouble forgiving someone that has hurt you uh, or offended you, one of the best things that you can do for them is to pray for them. 
one of the best things you can do for yourself is to pray for them. Uh, because as you pray for them and you, you're appealing to God on their behalf, on the behalf of your enemies, God actually enlarges your heart to love them as you're praying for them, to forgive them. And having given us four general commands, Jesus gives us vivid illustrations in verses 29 to 31. First, he says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. So Jesus is not teaching us to line up the volunteer to get pummeled by our enemies until we're unconscious. So a striking on the cheek is most likely a reference to a slap on the face with the back of the hand. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's intended as an insult. It's a picture of rejection. This is an illustration of someone who rejects you. When someone insults you, don't retaliate or withdraw from them, but continue to love them and do good to them. Of course, that might mean that you're risking getting slapped on the other side as well. If that's the kind of people they are. That's exactly Jesus' point. Love your enemies. Even if it means making yourself vulnerable again to their hatred, to their abuse. When someone insults you and speaks harshly to you, don't respond tit for tat and fight back. Don't cut off contact with that person. Find never to speak to that person again. Befriend them again. Love him again even though that means you might find yourself on the receiving end of verbal abuse again. Instead of being consumed with getting even, getting your rights, focus on loving your enemies. Retaliation in kind will not overcome hatred. It's love and the demonstration of the grace of God that overcomes evil. Please note that what I'm talking about here, what Jesus is teaching here, is this non-retaliation ethic is a personal ethic. It's not an institutional or a societal ethic. Romans 13.4 says that governing authorities bear the sword in order to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's the government's job to protect the innocent and the vulnerable and to punish abusers. But Jesus is teaching us not to retaliate personally ourselves. Paul summarizes Jesus' teaching helpfully in Romans 12, 19-21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I saw a, a short documentary last year entitled The Befriending for Shooter. I don't know if you guys have seen that. We told the story of a 13-year-old uh, boy, Ian Manuel, who was in a gang, and he, he shot a young mother in the face in downtown Tampa, Florida, uh, and was sentenced to life in prison. Uh, and, 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 and this woman, uh, Debbie, Debbie Bagley, publicly forgave him and campaign for him so that his sentence could be reduced uh, after establishing communication lines with him and befriending him. And, and that story kind of shows that interface between personal forgiveness and institutional justice. She personally forgave the shooter, but that did not reduce the young man's sentence because justice still has to be served, but she still obeyed the call to forgive personally. Jesus continues in verses 29 to 30. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. If someone steals your outer garment, Jesus is saying, don't withhold your undershirt. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But this is exactly what Jesus taught. Be generous to a fault. Forgive people to a fault. Don't be vengeful. Give to those who ask. Uh, the ESV, if you're looking at the same version I'm looking at of the Bible, uses the word beg, but the actual word that's used here is a more general term that means ask. And likely, it's referring not only to people who are begging on the streets, 
but also to those who are seeking to borrow money from you. So it's, this is confirmed by the summary in verses 34 to 35, which focuses on lending money to people uh, without expecting the same favor in return. We should give to everyone who has need and ask us for help. That's the idea, even at the risk of being taken advantage of. And Jesus sums it up in verse 31 in a memorable way that we have come to know. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Uh, this is what's popularly known as the golden rule. And we find variations of this command uh, all throughout uh, different cultures. For example, in the first century Jewish Greek philosopher Philo, he writes, whatever things anyone hates to suffer, let him not do. Similarly, Chinese philosopher Confucius writes in his analects, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. But Jesus' formulation is the most emphatic and positive of them all. Instead of simply telling us not to treat others as you don't want to be treated, Jesus calls us to be proactive in being sensitive toward others' needs as you want want others to look out for your own. We should treat others as we wish them to treat us. Most of the variations of the golden rule you find in other cultures are based on the idea of equality and reciprocity. And they're often selfish, actually, at their root. Do this for others so that they would do this for you. Don't do this to others so that they don't do this to you. But Jesus here calls us to a selfless and sacrificial love that goes beyond that, giving even when it hurts, foregoing our desires to meet the needs of others, not just so that we can get something back, but for the sake of loving the other person. If you're not squirming in your seats right now with discomfort, you're probably not understanding me rightly. This is a radical teaching. Jesus puts it in an absolute and shocking way, intentionally to confront us and force reflection on this issue. It's a teaching that makes no sense from a worldly standpoint. Why in the world would I do that? It only makes sense for the citizens of the kingdom of God who are poor, hungry, weeping, and hated now. Because if we're hoping for riches in this life, if we're hoping for fullness in this life, if we're hoping to laugh in this life, if we're hoping to be well-liked and highly regarded in this life, this ethic of selfless, sacrificial love makes absolutely no sense. But for the citizens of the kingdom of God, it makes all the sense in the world. Because with every act of personal forgiveness, even in the absence of institutional justice for ourselves, we are declaring that the God of justice will make all things right in the end. We're hoping for the kingdom that is coming. Because with every act of sacrificial giving, when we give, even though it hurts, even means we don't get to do what we want to do so that we can help someone else. When we give sacrificially in that way, we're declaring our faith that this world is not all there is for us. That there's a better world coming and we will be rewarded. That we are storing up treasures in heaven, not just in this world. That we are ready to part with consolations in this life because we know the prize of the kingdom awaits us. It's only if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God that this selfless sacrificial love make any sense. And then verses 32, 34, Jesus contrasts the love that he's commanding from the love of this world around us. Read with him. It says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Uh, the phrase, to get, the ba- get back the same amount, uh, is, is literally just to receive the same. Uh, and I think it's not speaking actually 
restrictively about wanting to get paid back in full for the loans you give out. It's actually speaking about lending to people who are able to give you some other kind of favor in return. Giving something to others, lending something, expecting something in return, expecting the same, to receive the same. So then it's consistent, it's parallel with everything, all the other ideas that are expressed here. The idea, the worldly mentality is, you scratch my back and I will scratch yours. But Jesus is directly contradicting that idea. He's not saying, don't say, I did you a favor this time, so do me a favor next time. We shouldn't only lend to people whom we expect something from in return. Isn't it true that we're, people kind of tend to, be, to size each other up all the time, no matter where you go, no matter what kind of society you're in? Is this fellow student of mine able to offer me help in other subjects if I spend time helping them in this subject? I should be nice to that person because, uh, because that person has a car. He can drive me to places. I should be nice to this manager, get gifts for this professor, because he or she has power and influence that can help me, take me places. Stop sizing people up. And stop showing favoritism to people who can do something for you. Jesus is saying, love people who can do nothing for you. Loving, expecting a return's favor. Lending to those whom you expect to get a return from. Doing good to those who can do good to you. Loving people who love you, that's human. That's not Christian. There's no benefit to that. There's no heavenly reward for that. That Christian love is to love those who hate you, to do good to those who do evil to you, and to lend to those from whom we can expect nothing in return. To love, serve, and give with no strings attached. It's an extremely high and difficult command, and that's why Jesus gives us very powerful motivations in verses 35 to 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Note the paradoxical nature of the Father's reward system. Only to the kind of love that expects nothing in return in this life that will God give a reward in the life to come. Jesus wants us to live by the upside-down kingdom ethics in this world now. And the second motivation is this, and you will be sons of the Most High. And this raises the question, but isn't Jesus already addressing his disciples who possess the kingdom now? Why does it sound like Jesus is saying, hey, if you do this, if you love this way, then I will give you the kingdom. Then I will make you sons of the Most High. The answer lies in the next clause. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is the reason why you will be the sons of the Most High when you love your enemies. For, because God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So the expression, this is referring to resemblance, not status. The expression, son of dot dot dot, fill in the blank, is a typical Hebrew idiom for, to refer to someone that is characterized by something. So Psalm 89.22 calls the wicked, literally, a son of wickedness. Right? Deuteronomy 3.18 describes courageous men as sons of valor. So when it says here, you will be sons of the Most High, Jesus is not talking about our status. If you love your enemies, you will be given the right to be sons of God. That's not what he's saying. If you do this, if you love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you, you will resemble the Father. The followers of Christ already are adopted children of God. But when we love our enemies and do good to those who hate us, we act like God. For, that's the reason, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Verse 36 clinches this argument. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Once again, the idea is resemblance. Since you are a child of God already, you should resemble your Father. Show that you're cut from the same cloth. Prove your paternity that God the Father is your Father. 
Be merciful because your Father is merciful. And this highlights the ordinary mercy of God. Right? Because we take for granted the way this world works. Sometimes we don't stop to recognize God's mercy. But any given moment, we are all sinners. We deserve God's fury and wrath, His holy justice. Any given moment, right? any given moment, we could fall right to hell and burn and be dismissed into oblivion and forgotten forever. That's what we deserve. And every breath we take, and every air, every moment of air that we breathe, we are sustained by the mercy of God. We don't recognize this, and that's why we don't appreciate the mercy of God. We deserve God's wrath right now. We stand right now. We sit in our seats right now. We listen to this right now. We work and live and eat and move and have our be because of God's mercy. That's how merciful God the Father is to us right now. The same way we have to show mercy to others. Because even though we are ungrateful, and evil. The Father shows mercy. And God's mercy sees an even more amazing and special, specific application in the way Jesus saves his people. Romans 5, 10 tells us this. It says, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We can love our enemies because God loved us while we were his enemies. We were not sincere people, good people, pretty good people that are finding our way to God. We were his sworn enemies. We were rebelling against him, refusing to do his will, refusing to acknowledge him in any aspect of our lives, living for our glory ourselves, stealing and robbing from his glory. That's who we are. And, that's, and if, so if you think it's hard for, for you, if we think it's hard for us to love those enemies that come to mind, if we think it's hard to, to love those who have abused us, those who have hurt us, those who have made us feel small, those who have offended us, if it's hard for us to love, imagine the holy God, the perfect God, the righteous God from eternity past, the great God, loving us while we were his enemies. While we were his enemies, Jesus died for our sins to save us. And it's when we are transformed by that love that we can now love those who hate us.